Once there was a Roman centurion, a leader of an army, who had a servant whom he loved, and the servant fell sick. And so this Roman leader sent for this Jewish rabbi to come to see if he might be able to help his servant. And as Jesus was close to the house, the Roman centurion sent some other servants out to interrupt and say, no, no, no. You see, uh, our, our, our boss isn't even comfortable with you coming all the way to the house. He believes that if you just say something from here, he knows that you can heal. And in that moment, Jesus was impressed and the servant was healed. There's a woman who for 12 years had a particular medical condition that caused her to bleed nonstop. And she exhausted all of her resources to try to find answers from the medical community. And for 12 years, she found nothing. And there was this one moment where Jesus was passing by and she thought to herself, if I can just touch the edge of his cloak, perhaps I can find healing. And touch, she did. And in that moment, her bleeding stops. There was another woman who was a mother and she was from a place called Canaan. And if you know anything about the Canaanites, the Canaanites and the Jewish people weren't friends. And the Canaanite mother had a daughter who it was said was demon-possessed. And the Canaanite woman looked for answers in her own religion and didn't find them. And so she found Jesus one day and asked for healing for her daughter. And Jesus said, I'm sorry, but I've come for the children of Israel, not for you. And yet, hashtag, nevertheless, she persisted. And Jesus healed her daughter. There was one other woman and all that we know about her was that she was called Sinner. Mm. And Sinner showed up one night at the house of a, a Pharisee who had a dinner party for his esteemed guest, Jesus. And this woman known as Sinner shows up, interrupts the party, of course, to the Pharisee's great dismay. And she kneels down and begins to anoint and cleanse Jesus' feet and, and wash it with her hair and this expensive oil and her tears. And of course, the Pharisee was aghast that Jesus would allow this scandalous thing to happen. And Jesus says, this is so beautiful. Like, they're going to be talking about this for a really long time. And we still are. <laughs> and he says to this woman, your sins are forgiven. Which I don't know all of what that means, but I think one thing that it means is, hey, stop calling her sinner. Hey, what's going on, Springfield? How you doing? It's good to be here with you. My name, if you haven't already heard it too many times today, good gravy, is uh, Colby Martin. And it is so good to be here with you at the venues. I've never been to this part of the country. And uh, I got to be honest with you, I kind of like it. I kind of like it. I've already picked up some fun new sayings like, hot as the devil's front porch. Did I get that right? Is that a thing that you say here? Uh, something like crazy as a bag of cats? <laughs> Who says? You guys say this. This is wonderful. Um, but no, for reals, it's good to be here with you here in Springfield, Missouri. Last night I got to enjoy this uh, lovely dinner with some of your staff and your leadership. I got to meet uh, Philip and Denise and Barbie, who pretty much runs the joint, is my understanding, and I've seen that happen. I got to, to meet Chris, who was up here earlier, and, and his wife Morgan, and then I got to meet Jay and Maddie. I don't know if I've seen you yet here, Jay and Maddie, but um, anyway, I just got to, to hang out with them, and they gave me a ride back to the, the hotel. Thank you for that, uh, but it's just really good to be here with you. I, I want to start by saying this. I'm really proud of you. 
venues, church. I'm really proud of you. I've been traveling, as Chris uh, mentioned, so I've got this second book here uh, called The Shift. I'll talk about it here, here in a second. And I've been traveling for the last eight months talking about this book, going to communities that are similar to this. And the thing is, is there's not, there's not a lot. There's not a lot of communities like this. And so one of the things I like to say when I show up at places like this is I like to, I like to let you know, because sometimes, sometimes your pastors can, 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 can communicate this to you and it doesn't always land because you're like, yeah, I, we know, like this is our church, we know you. But when you have someone else come along and say, no, you don't understand, you're lucky to have a place like this. Like for reals. Places, yeah, that's worth, uh, thank you. That is worth applauding yourselves for like you're, you're, you're doing it and I'm so freaking proud of you. So keep it up. I know it's a grind. Uh, I know the, the challenges are myriad, um, but you're doing it and I'm really, really proud of you. So keep going. We need places like this. But that's on a collective level. And then for what it's worth, and you know, you don't know me and I don't really know you, so this may not mean much to you, but on an individual level, I'm going to look some of you that I can see in the eyeballs because the lights prevent me from seeing most of your faces. But I'm going to look at you in, in the eyes, just a couple of you, because I want you to know on an individual level, listen to me now, you're doing a really good job. You're doing a really good job. You're doing, you're doing great. Life is really hard, and you're doing it, and I'm proud of you. You're doing great. Life's hard, <laughs> and you're here. Not just like here at church. I mean, you're here, like you're showing up to life. You're doing it, and I'm really proud of you. And sometimes you just need someone to come along and say, Whew, you're doing a great job. You're doing a great job. I'm really proud of you. Okay, so other than to deliver this news of you doing a great job, why am I here? Uh, so I wrote this book. It came out in uh, 2020, just a couple weeks after the pandemic uh, came and, and turned America uh, on its head. And so the plans that I had to kind of travel and talk about it back then all got canceled and postponed. Um, and then uh, last October, I closed down the church that I had, helped, that I had, had started in San Diego uh, nine years ago. And as Chris mentioned, I've been, I've been a pastor for 20 years, the first 10 in conservative evangelical context, and the, and, and the last 10 in sort of post-evangelical, progressive Christian context. And for the first time, when, it, when we closed our church last October, for the first time, I had nothing to do on Sundays. <laughs> like, what am I going to do with my time? And so I thought, hey, you know what? I never got to actually travel and talk about the shift. So let me dust off some of those contacts and see if I can make a little tour out of it. And, and three events led to five, led to seven. And I think this is now my 22nd stop since January is I've just been traveling around saying, hey, I have something I want to I share with you. And, it, and the idea of the book is this. It's kind of a survival guide. For those who have made the shift, who are, who are in the shift of moving out of their more conservative Christian context, this could be family, this could be churches, this could be community, they've moved out of, or in some, in some instances, kicked out of, right? They're moving away from that, and they're moving towards something, I don't know. They know that they want it to still be Christian, still be anchored to, tethered to the heritage of Christianity, because that matters, to them, but they needed to be more open. They needed to be more expansive, more inclusive, more 
progressive. Look, that's a term that I use. If it's helpful for you, great. Use it. If not, don't use it. I don't really care. Labels are helpful until they're not. Sometimes they become boundaries and barriers. But if it's helpful, progressive Christian is just my way of saying, look, we, are, we believe like the progress is still in front of us. Uh, and so this is a survival guide for those who are moving, shifting from a conservative sort of closed-minded religion into something more open, expansive, inclusive, and progressive. And today what I want to specifically talk about is one of the things that I've noticed, because I wrote this book because for the last 10 years I've been, I've been, I've been helping people sort of go through this shift. I've been like their, their, their Sherpa. Is that a term like, right? Where you kind of travel alongside and carry someone? I don't know if that's the right term. Their bellhop? I don't know. Uh, <laughs> I've, been, I've been helping people with their baggage as they've been moving from conservative to progressive Christianity. And one of the things that I've found most helpful in this effort, for me personally, and then I've seen it unlock others, is to reimagine, rethink, reconsider... Two terms in particular, one being faith and one being saved. Faith and saved. And so I began with these four stories, the Roman centurion, the woman bleeding for 12 years, the Canaanite mom, and the woman known as sinner. I started with these four stories because I noticed years ago that in each one of them, there is this connective tissue between this idea of faith and being saved, or in some of these stories, the word translated is healed. The Roman centurion sent for Jesus to come and help heal his servant. And Jesus says, uh, someone's timer's going off. Am I already done? Oh no, I just got started. No, I'm just kidding. Um, <laughs> Jesus said to the Roman centurion, I have not seen faith like this in all of Israel. What, an, what incredible faith is on display here. And in that moment, the servant was healed. And so the woman who was stuck bleeding for 12 years, when, when Jesus like, realizes that power had gone out of him and, and he, he interacts with this woman and she explains what happened, he says, your, your faith has saved you. And, and to the Canaanite woman, the, the mother whose daughter was possessed with a demon, once, once she got Jesus' attention, Jesus says, your faith has made your daughter well. Your faith has healed your daughter and to the woman known as sinner, once he says, your sins have been forgiven, he says, your faith has saved you. <laughs> Go in peace. And so for years, I've been sitting with stories like these in the Gospels where there's this connection between faith and saved. And I want to I share a little bit with you this morning on what comes up for me now when I, when I think about these stories and think about these terms, faith and saved. Traditionally, we might hear stories like this. And the, 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 the takeaway or the teaching or the interpretation is something like this. Out there, there is a God. And if you believe the right things, or if you believe hard enough, or if you do it the right way, then this God who has the power and the capacity to heal whomever, whenever, if you do it right and you believe right and you say the right words, then you just might get lucky and maybe one day you'll get healed. This is sometimes how this is taken. Like, man, I just got to pray harder. I got to believe more correctly. I got to stop doing these seven things or maybe start doing those four things. I just got to be honest with you. Uh, I don't like that interpretation. <laughs> For one, it, it gives this picture of a, of a God who I believe the author of the letter 1 John accurately described as love. God is love. 
It gives this idea that God can just heal whomever, whenever, but, you know, sort of just reserves and, and holds off and waits for the right conditions and the right people at the right time. Like only some get that. And it also puts way too much pressure on you and me to get it right. Like, oh, I haven't experienced healing there, so I must not have it right yet. I'm going to try harder. So I don't, really, I don't really like how these stories sometimes get conveyed and thought about. And, and, and so I want to share maybe an alternative way to think about these stories, which will, I hope, also help illuminate. Uh, and what I want to leave you with is a, is a different way to think about faith and a different way to think about what it means to be saved. Okay, so you've got these four stories. And what I notice is that these four stories, they all seem to, to highlight individuals who are at the end of their rope. People who are exhausted. Exhausted from the perpetual disappointments and exhausted from the hardships of life. You've got this Roman centurion who presumably has the backing of the world's largest empire. Has the, the political power of ancient Rome at his disposal. And yet he turns to this backwater preacher from Nazareth. You've got this woman who has used all of her resources, all of her money to try and find answers in the medical community and only uh, to end up with a, an empty bank account and still this condition of bleeding. You've got this mom who has, I would imagine, given herself wholly and fully into her religious ways and yet has not been able to do anything for her daughter who seems to be possessed with this demon. And then you've got this other woman who has been told by her community who she is and what she is. Like, here's, the here's, here's what you are. Do not dare try to go outside of it. This is what you are to us now. These are people who were... I read these stories, I'm like, they're, they're tired. They, they, have, they have touched the edge of these different systems and realized that the answers they seek are not here. And this is part of why, by the way, even though I have I've left a lot of my evangelical roots behind and I'm a, I'm a recovering Baptist, thanks for having me here this morning. <laughs> like, I, I've... Uh, like, I've left a lot of that behind for these last 10 years, but one of the things that I, I, I take, uh, take with me is, is the Bible. Like, yes, I, I hold it differently, literally and metaphorically. <laughs> literally, I almost grabbed my phone. I hold it differently. Um, and I think about it differently, and I read it differently, but I, 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 one of the reasons why I still love it is because you get these moments, these, these stories that, that zero in on, on these particular instances uh, that, that have a way of illuminating the universal experience of what it means to be human. Because who among us can't relate to the idea of being let down by politics? Yeah, that's, a, that's the appropriate response. Like, we know what it's like to, to feel like we live in the greatest place in the world. Now, look, I know it's a problematic statement. I'm just saying, hang with me here. Like, we live in the greatest country in the world, and yet, why is everything so broken all the time? And so we can relate to the centurion who's like, yeah, I've got Rome at my back, but honestly, Rome is just letting me down right now. Like, we know what that's like, and we know what it's like to feel like if I just had enough money, <laughs> then I can make everything work. Or if I just got the right doctor, if I just got, like science can fix everything. Hmm. 
Can it though? Does it though? Which experts are we following today? Which WebMD article is going to be updated next week and tell me that now broccoli prevents cancer instead of causing it? Oh, so stressful. What do I do with broccoli? Money, science. Who, who amongst doesn't like these? We, we think that they might solve all of life's problems, and yet sometimes we're like, they don't. And who among us, <laughs> if, I imagine if you're at a church like the venues, you can relate to this idea of, I did religion right. And why did life still happen to me? <laughs> I went to all the Bible studies. I memorized the verses. I tithed X amount. I, I, you know what I mean? Like you, you did your religion well, and yet suffering and tragedy and heartbreak and devastation and betrayal still found their way into your back door. And who in here <laughs> can relate to that experience of having other people tell you who you are? Deciding, no, this is the label that we've given you now. Society, culture, family, friend groups or ex-friend groups. Oh, this is who you are. Don't try and be in it. Do you know what I mean? Like these stories, they're 2,000 years old and yet they are two seconds old because they're still reflecting back the experience of what it is to be a human on this spinning rock that's like flying through outer space. So these people, for me, are just illustrative of this experience of running up against these, these edges of these systems and these ideas and these religions and these, uh, these concepts, the things that are supposed to provide us a sense of security and stability and safety and maybe salvation. And yet they don't. And yet they don't. In these stories, I, I, I'm struck by the way that these individuals have experienced the limitations of these various systems and concepts in ways that expose the fragility of humanity. We were driving here this morning, uh, Philip and Denise came and picked me up, and we were driving here this morning, and we were talking about death, because that's what you do on a Sunday morning when you're driving to church, and how, you know, we're like, why, 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 why does the path towards death like the aging process in, in, in particular, like how come as you get older, like everything starts to wind down and shut down and we're, anyways, I was just thinking about death and, I'm, and part of me was like, but death is what makes life so interesting. Death is what makes life so exciting. If we knew we wouldn't die, have you ever seen The Good Place? I won't spoil it for you, but the last season of The Good Place is this beautiful exposition of what if there was no ending? Like that's, that's terrifying. And so there's something about the fact that there's limits to this human life that we, that we, like, we know, spoiler alert, you are going to die. And some of that, what? No. It's, it happens for us all. But there's something about that that, like, at one hand terrifies us. That's why we spend so many plates trying to escape realizing that we are fragile humans. Uh, but once you can sort of let these plates fall, or sometimes they just drop without our permission, like, oh, this is all I got. I got I to gotta wake up and I got to pay attention. And so my thinking is if, if, our, if our ultimate hope is, uh, hope is in politics, if our hope is in money, science, if our hope is in religion, if our hope is in family and society, 
then eventually we're going to realize that it's going to leave us disappointed, disillusioned, exhausted, cynical. And this leads me to the second way that I think historically these, uh, these stories have been maybe misunderstood. And it has to do with what I, what I call the way that it illustrates the, the supremacy of Christianity, okay? It's as though these, and the idea is this, it's, it's as though these four characters in these stories fell down at the feet of Jesus and worshipped him as though he was like the second person in the Trinity. And because they had this theological correctness about them, then they get rewarded by Jesus with salvation. And so sometimes these stories are like takeaways of look how good a Christians these are. And I, I just got to tell you, that doesn't make any sense. Because Christianity didn't exist in these stories. Do you understand me? Christianity didn't exist yet. Christianity wasn't a thing until after the death and the resurrection and people tried to figure out, how do we now start to organize our life and our communities based on these teachings of this guy that we followed around for a couple years? And then Christianity like, became a thing. When these stories were happening, there was no Christianity. <laughs> so these weren't people being good Christians. And I'll take it a step further. If the idea is that the individuals in these stories had great faith, which oftentimes in the church world we, we conflate faith with beliefs. I spend a whole chapter in this book trying to, to disentangle faith from beliefs. These are not the same things. I'll talk about that in a second. But oftentimes these people are, are seen as having great faith, which is to say they believe the correct things. But if the horse, anyone made any sort of doctrinal statement to Jesus? Like, Jesus, I've been bleeding for 12 years, and I believe you are the, the, the incarnate God born of a virgin, and that in a couple of weeks you're going to die, and I believe you're going to come back from the dead, and I believe it's going to atone, sacrifice. No, nobody makes any of these doctrinal statements. This is not what's happening in these stories. They're not confessing to have some sort of apostle creed type faith. It's not that his, on Jesus is, wow, being impressed with their faith. Not because they believe, not because they're, they've got Christianity figured out. This is not what's happening. So what, what are the responses that we see in these, in these four stories? Well, in the three stories with the, the three women, all three of these women are described as, as like kneeling at Jesus' feet or, 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 or humbling themselves before Jesus in some way, pro, making themselves prostrate, like throwing themselves down in front of Jesus. And then you have the Roman centurion who's like, no, 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 you... you I don't even want you to come to my house. Like, I, I'm not even worthy to have you cross the threshold of my, of, my, of my home. And so what we see in these four stories is we see individuals who have this, this humility, this, this, this sense of openness. Because when you are kneeling at someone, like you, are, you are throwing yourself at their feet you, very, very literally, and also you are like, I am open. You, you basically have all the say here. I am completely open to you. This is what these four, this is what seemed to impress Jesus in these four stories, is that these people, it's like they've reached the edge, like I said, of, of, of the ways in which politics and money and science and religion and society, they've reached the edges of, of, of realizing those things can't help them, and they have reached the end of themselves, really, and they've said, I don't have much, Jesus, but what I have is me, and I'm given that. Given that, it's all I have. And think about the ways in which each of these characters, to get to that level of humiliation, 
which is the same root word of, of humble. Think, think of the humiliation of being a, a leader of a Roman army and saying, yeah, one of my favorite people are sick and you know who we're going to go we're going to go ask, we're not going to ask Rome. Like how humiliating to say, no, I'm not even, I'm not even going to check with Rome. I'm going to, I, I've heard whispers of this, this Jewish apocalyptic preacher from the backwaters of Galilee. Go get him. I mean, think of how hum, humiliated in, in the story of the woman who had been bleeding for 12 years. There's this, Luke describes it as, uh, G, she says, Jesus turns around and, and asks her what she wants. And, and Luke says that she explains everything to him, for everyone to hear. How humiliating would that be? For everyone to hear, for you to, to uh, lay bare all of your life's struggles and secrets. And, and, and the, the woman who, who left Canaan, who left her homeland, who left her religion to try to find help for her daughter. Again, how humiliating to, to humble yourself to that level, to say everything that I have sort of given my life to is now letting me down. I, I, have, I got nothing. Help. And I, I think it's self-evident, the, the level of humiliation. And I hope you hear me correctly. I'm not saying humiliation in that these people should be embarrassed or ashamed. It's the humiliation of saying, I have realized that all I have is me and I give it. The, the woman known as Sinner who shows up interrupts this dinner party. So just think about the ways in which all of these characters have, have reached the end of themselves in these systems, and they're like, this is, I got nothing, it's just me, and, and, I, and I give it. This, this is what seems to impress Jesus. Not their beliefs, not having correct doctrine or theology. Now, I'm not going to pretend to know. I'm not going to suggest to you that I know what happened. Like if we were a fly on the wall and all four of these stories like historically happened, I'm not, I, don't, I don't know. Maybe the centurion really was, uh, the servant really was healed in that moment and whatever ailment he had. Maybe the, the woman, her bleeding really did stop. Maybe, the, maybe there really was a demon, I don't know, that possessed this girl. I don't know. When they Again, I don't really know. I'm not going to tell you I know exactly what happened or what the stories mean on that level. I don't know. Maybe, maybe these things really did happen. Maybe this sort of extra supernatural, magical, mystical things. Maybe they did happen, do happen. I don't know. Maybe these were like psychosomatic responses. Maybe these were just stories that were told years later to reflect what it felt like to be around Jesus, what this experience of being close to him felt like. I don't really know. But for me, the power in these stories is not necessarily dependent on that. And that leads me to the third way that these stories, I think, often get misunderstood. Because many of us, when we hear this phrase, your faith has saved you, we end up thinking saved as in going to heaven when I die. <laughs> that's, what, that's what to be saved means, right? And faith, as I said a minute ago, means to, well, have the right beliefs. And so we hear your faith has saved you, and we end up thinking, well, if you believe the right things, then when you die, you'll go to heaven. But I hope so far, as many times as I've touched on these stories, I hope 
already you can pick up on the fact that these stories are not about experiences after a person dies. <laughs> these stories hinge on very real, in the moment, flesh and blood, happening now realities. So it's about life before death for these stories. So whatever saved means in these contexts does not mean where you go when you die. And then faith. Okay, well, let's, let's stay with saved for a second. So saved in these stories. Three of the stories, uh, depends on your translations, but you'll get saved in most of them. One of them might have healed. And the reason is because there's two Greek words at play here. The, 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 the most common Greek word at play here is sozo. The Greek word is sozo. And, and, and most of the time when you come across sozo in your English Bibles, sozo is going to be translated as saved. But sozo more literally, or, or I would say accurately understood, sozo means, uh, has got a sense of liberation, a sense of rescue, or even more to the point, to be made whole. Sozo means to be made whole, to have the parts restored. And then the word that it gets translated as healed is the Greek word iomai, which again can be healed, but also can, be mean, can mean to be restored, to be made whole. Whole. So both of these words, the thing that's happening here, again, is not life after death. It's an experience now, and it all has to do with wholeness, being made whole, being, being put back together again. Your faith has brought you back together, has put you back together, has made you whole. And now let's talk about faith for a second. The Greek word for faith in all of these stories. And most of the time when you come across the word faith, the Greek word is pistis. Just a wonderful Greek word. One of my favorites, pistis. And pistis more accurately understood, I submit to you, faith isn't a super helpful word to think about pistis because again, we end up conflating faith with the things that I believe. Pistis is more about trust. Which is why in my book I talk about, I, I encourage us to think of faith more as a verb. It's a thing we do, not a thing we have. Because a lot of people, when they go through a kind of shift, they end up saying things like, oh, I've lost my faith, or my faith just isn't what it used to be. And, and what they really mean is my beliefs are different. I'm like, yeah, well, that's welcome to being a human. I hope your beliefs are different. But that has nothing to do with your faith. Faith is, is a posture of trust. This is what pistis means. It's a, it, it, it means trust. Not just to believe. Okay, so here's how I'm going to illustrate this. I need four volunteers. I need four volunteers to come up here. So four volunteers can come up here and spare everybody else the awkwardness of waiting. Thank you. We've got one. Oh, and she's pulling up her spouse. We've got two. Thank you. I love it. Okay, we need two more. We need two more. Thank you. Come on up. Oh, he's like, no, I'm not coming up. No. We just need one more. Come on. Someone put everybody else out of their awkward misery. Just one more volunteer. Thank you back there. All right, thank you. All right, everybody say thank you. <laughs> now you don't have to come up here. You're welcome, they said. Okay, so if you four can come over here, I need two of you to stand right sort of in this black area here, and then the other two to stand right there next to you, and then, and then face each other. So you two, nope, go the other way, yep. And then you two turn and face each other. Now grab each other's hands. You need to come this way a little bit more. Okay, now, now kind of take a step back. And make a nice for okay, thank you. So now I'm gonna need you to okay. I'm gonna need you to I'm gonna need you to really I'm gonna need you to really lock this okay, you feel good about this? Do you feel good about this? Okay. So <laughs> I feel great. Okay. Okay, are you ready? Okay, so all right, everybody say thank you to our volunteers. You're good, you're good, you may be seated. Okay. So <laughs> what <laughs> 
What I just demonstrated to you is what I like to call a belief stand. A belief stand is where I just stand here and believe, man, if I, if I felt backwards, yeah, they'd catch me, but I don't actually do anything about it. I just believe it. Am I, yeah, I really do believe that you would have caught me. What you were expecting was what? A trust fall. Thank you. Six of you are paying attention. A trust fall. <laughs> A trust fall is what often happens in like leadership retreats or whatever, where the person falls back and then they catch you, right? Tr- this is the difference between pistis as understood as like faith belief, just having the correct ideas versus pistis as trust, actually doing a thing. When Jesus says that your pistis has sozoed you, it's not the ideas in your head have made it so that when you die, you'll not go to the scary place. Jesus is saying this act that you're doing, this, this, this thing that you are doing right here and right now to demonstrate a kind of trust, this, this giving of yourself because you realize that, that that's all you have left at the end of the day. You give that of yourself. That act right there, that pistis, has made you whole, is making you whole in this moment right here, right now, is bringing you to wholeness. I was thinking about this this morning too, is that beliefs, beliefs are easy. They don't, they don't ask anything of you. Honestly, you can just stay at home, cozy, snuggled on the couch with your cup of tea, binging, Whatever it is you watch in Missouri, I was going to say Ozarks, but I thought that'd be a little too on the nose. <laughs> Love is blind. I don't know what you watch out here. <laughs> Survivor, Chris? Where are you at? Yep. All right. Thank you. Belief is easy. You can just stay home and believe all you want. It doesn't make any demands of your life. But trust. Trust is terrifying. You got to actually do something. Maybe this is why when Paul was in prison and he wrote to the church in Philippi, he said, work out your sozo, work out your salvation, work out the process of becoming whole with fear and trembling. If you've ever done like deep soul work, if you've ever done like, like intense therapy, if you've ever confronted your shadow like in the union sense, that is hard. That's, t- that's fear and trembling right there take a hard, honest look at yourself. <sighs> Beliefs are easy. But trust? So for me, when I read these stories, I think this idea of throwing yourself fully, opening yourself up wholly, this is the, the, the pistis that sozoed these individuals. This is the faith that saved them. This is the trust that made these characters whole. There's this kind of salvific work, this process of being made whole when we embody this posture of trust, of throwing ourselves into, I'll say, the arms of love. You can use whatever metaphor you want. And what I find so endlessly fascinating about these stories is that the path to wholeness for all of them, the path to being put back together again, it started. It started with their brokenness. It started with being completely at the end of themselves. 
That's where it begins. The path to wholeness begins when we are at our, at our weakest. When you have nothing left. When you feel totally broken, despondent, alone. That oftentimes is the perfect soil for your salvation. And I hope that's good news. Can I tell you why I hope it's good news? No? Okay. My final point... I'm just kidding. I know, it's always awkward when preachers use rhetorical questions. You're like, I don't, are we supposed to answer? I don't know. I hope it's good news because the last year of my life has been an undoing of all of the systems and the identities and the routines and the relationships and the vocations that I have uh, I would say subconsciously attached my sense of well-being to. Thank you. Thank you, Amanda. So I, I, I hope the path to wholeness begins when you're at your weakest. I, I, I hope the path to wholeness begins when you realize that politics and money and religion and science and relationships and society aren't the things that are going to put you back together again. I, I hope that's true because that's where I'm at right now. And my guess is some of you are there too. Some of you here this morning are real tired, real burnt out, real sad, real alone. You're like, but you're sitting in a church with hundreds of other people. Yeah. And you're super alone. Some of you are here this morning and you're barely hanging on. So I, I guess my, 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 my word of good news for you is I think you're, you're kind of in the perfect place for rescue, for liberation, for wholeness. Like this is, this is where the path to wholeness begins is in this place, this space where you're in. Salvation's not about an escape from this world, at least not as I understand it. It's not about sticking your head in the sand and just believing things are going to be okay. It's about a kind of rescue and healing here and now that leads to a kind of wholeness. And what I love about thinking about salvation in this way is to think about wholeness happening here and now is, is a way to affirm that the pieces of you are not bad. They're just broken right now. The piece, I'm going to say that again. The pieces of you are not bad. The view of salvation that says the point is to just sort of rocket ship out of here when you die, that view usually says like all the parts of you are bad. You're fallen. You're messed up. You're unworthy. You're, all your pieces are bad. The only hope for you is that maybe God will extend some grace to you depending on your theology. I don't know if you're chosen or if you've got to do the free will thing. I don't know if you've got to get baptized. You know what I mean? Like there's just so many ways to Canaanite woman that to be like, what is the right way to do all this? That theology says you're bad, but if you do it right or you think right or you pray right, then all of those bad parts will be redeemed in the afterlife. Thinking about wholeness and salvation in this way, it says, no, 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 the parts of you aren't bad. I'm sorry you were told that. 
I'm sorry you were told that there were parts of you that were bad. It's like the, the oh God, here's the tangent. Barbie, here's the tangent. I'm, I'm just going to go real quick, and then I'm going to come right back. You know the, 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 the Genesis 3 story, the, the, the creation uh, narrative, the poem there, where, where uh, Eve eats of the, the tree of the, the, the knowledge of good and evil, and then Adam eats of it, and then, and then God comes looking, and they're hiding. They're hiding. And they've made fig leaves to like cover themselves up because suddenly they have this new awareness of who they are. Oh gosh, I'm, okay, hold on Colby. Just a little bit of tangent. Stay focused. Okay, <laughs> I just want to start doing all that now. But no, and you, you remember God comes and he's looking for them and like, where are you? And, and they respond with, well, we were ashamed, so we're hiding. Do you remember what God says to them? Who told you that you were naked? Where did that idea come? Who told you there's anything to hide? Who told you there's anything you got to cover up? Who told you there's anything you got to change? Who told you that? I'm sorry. When you get put back together again, this, this affirmation is that the pieces are not bad. They're just, they're broken. And they get broken. They get broken all the time. Welcome to being a freaking human. They get broken all the time. People break them. Your own internal unresolved pain and trauma breaks them. That's just a normal part of life. The beauty, though, the beauty is this. And this is what I'll leave you with. Salvation for me, wholeness for me, is not about never being broken. Wholeness is not about never being broken. Wholeness and the faith that saves is about a trust that there is a God in whom love and mercy is never ending. There is a God that every time, every time when you do break, there is hope to be put back together again. That, for me, my friends, is a faith that truly saves. Thank you.